0: Welcome to Home Based Hope, all about autism, the show that invites you to think differently, inspires you to take a whole child approach, and most of all, instills hope when it comes to your child and autism. I'm your host, Rhiannon Crisp, from HomebaseHope.com.au. Let's get into it. Hi guys, welcome back. If you haven't heard of the incredible five-point scale, then today might be a little game-changer for you. Today we are discussing how you can best manage your child's emotions and behaviours through the use of a simple scale. We will be talking all about types, the types of undesirable behaviours and talking you through how you can put a plan in place that will help your child understand their own behaviour. All you have to do is Google the five-point scale and you will get hundreds, if not thousands of results and a ton of images of how other people around the world are using this truly incredible scale. Today's guest is Kari Dunburn. Kari is an autism education specialist. She has taught in the public school system with students on the autism spectrum for over 30 years. In 2003, Kari received a self-designed fellowship that allowed her to spend a year interviewing and working internationally with scientists and researchers in the areas of neuroscience, social cognition, education, and autism with a focus on challenging behaviours. Kari is the co-author of the incredible Five Point Scale and Social Behaviour and Self-Management. She is the author of When My Worries Get Too Big, Adeline's Claire, A Five Could Make Me Lose Control, and A Five Is Against The Law. Her most recent project is the Social Times Curriculum, a curriculum for teachers working with students who struggle with social understanding and challenging behavior. Kari presents her work both nationally and internationally, and I'm so excited to have her joining us today. Welcome Kari. Thank you. Uh, it's, nice it's, to, <laughs> uh, it's lovely to have you with us. It's not every day we get the opportunity to fire a whole heap of questions to a leading expert in the industry like yourself. Oh, so, well, Thank you, I, <laughs> thank I hope you. I can answer questions. questions. Uh, excellent. Well, I'd love to start with your personal journey. So, if we could rewind the clock a little bit and can you tell us about the type of work that you have been involved in over the years?
1: Uh, Certainly. Um, Early on, I started working at a state institution. Uh, That was in 1973. It was before we had the special education law in the United States. So I've been in uh, special education really since it began uh, officially. And then in 1981, I was hired by the state of Minnesota to create a program for children with autism. And since then, uh, I've been a part of really Minnesota's um, autism team. It's a state statewide team. Um, from the the very beginning, when nobody really knew anything, we none of us knew what we were doing, and so we would go to national conferences and bring back information. And we formed an autism team for the state of Minnesota. And that was really a big. Piece of my work came out of that—that uh, that just that um, teaming with everyone in the state, coming up with ideas, always trying to figure out how to do something better. Um, it really was a wonderful model to sort of grow up in in my career. Uh, from there, uh, and that's all the while I was in the classroom. Um, so we were doing the. Uh, the state team, we would do that work on particular days during one day a month um, and sometimes on the weekends. But that then led to my designing a program at Hamlin University, uh, was a certificate program for teachers, for educators, um, because I had done some research showing that there were there, there was no coursework specific to autism at that time. Uh, and this was in the '90s um, in the state of Minnesota. So I developed a program, and um, Hamlin University um, accredited it, and we started. Te- I started teaching there as well as in the school, and then in 2006, I actually retired from public school and just taught at Hamlin and wrote books. Mm. <laughs> and yeah, so I've been writing. Since then, my fellowship really did – was a real turning point for me. That um, And I did come to Australia during that time. That was in 2004 um, to work with Tony Atwood. Um, and I worked in England and uh, throughout Canada and the U.S.
0: Hmm. Yeah, yeah, so can you talk to me uh, – it sounds like you've had an absolutely amazing career and – there's been so many highlights, like in terms of all the books and resources that programs that you've been able to create. Um, What, what were some of the challenges that you were seeing in the classroom that sort of prompted, you know, going out and, and spreading your message sort of further in terms of um, parents and educators being able to help children in regards to their behaviors and their emotions?
1: Yes. Um, Early on, when I started the the, school, the classroom in um, 1981 here in Minnesota, really my tools consisted of behavior modification. It's really all that I was taught
0: um, when I got my degree in, in behavior disorders. And, so what, so um, can we just talk about what's behavior modification? What does that look like?
1: Um, behavior modification is um, – it's sometimes called applied behavior analysis that's the science um it's out uh, so behavior modification is responding to behavior in a particular way to stop it um so it, it could be a reward or punishment type of program those would be considered behavior modification and those were the programs that i learned when i was in graduate school but i they were not serving me well I had um a group of children uh who were biting me and uh kicking me and I it was frustrating because I would try to I would use positive um feedback or I would use punitive feedback both of which were what I was taught and what I found was that it wasn't working I knew that there was I was missing something by just using these reward and punishment programs. The other thing that changed that really came into my life a uh, big time is a firm belief that punishment was not working and I didn't want a punitive program. So I started cer- seeking out information about totally non-punitive programming. And that's, I, I switched to that in uh, about 1985 I just stopped using punishment altogether and started having a lot more fun and started enjoying the kids more and I had a lot more success. Um, what I focused on then was teaching rather than controlling. And as I learned more about um, possible core issues involved with autism uh, in the 90s, the uh, During the decade of the brain, we we were talking a lot in the field about what might be going on neurologically in uh, autism and starting to reframe it from an emotional disorder to a cognitive um, brain-based disorder. And by the turn of the century, um, we had clearly been able to see the changes in the brain differences in the brain of living brains due to functional mri and that was a huge game changer because that now instead of just having well the, the researchers in the area of neuroscience had previously like five brains and that's what they had they could count the cells and abnormalities in real brains of deceased individuals with autism so now, all of a sudden, we could look at brains uh, in real life, uh, have, have somebody look at a photograph, have somebody look at, uh, read a book, and they began to map the brain. And during the mapping of the brain, um, it was discovered that social thinking and emotional thinking was also a part of that map. And in earth, some of the early research, this was uh, done by uh, Dr. R- uh, Robert Schultz at Yale University. He had um, some individuals in the uh, functional MRI scan looking at a photograph of a thing. And uh, he a, po- a specific part of the brain lit up in typical people. And in individuals on the autism spectrum. And it was the same for both. And then he had the same group look at a picture of a face. And he found that um, the individuals, uh, typical individuals, a, a different part of the brain lit up when they looked at a face. It was called the fusiform gyrus, a different part of the brain. And then when they had the individuals on the autism spectrum look at that face, the part of the brain lit up that lit up for things. So theoretically, a person with autism might be using a less effective part of the brain to figure out people and emotions. And this just really, um, I think, took the the whole neuroscience of education uh, by surprise but also uh, everyone was excited. Um, Simon Baron Cohen in Europe uh, did some research in the area of learning theory, and he proposed that individuals with autism seem to be hyper-systemizers in the way they think and that they seem to not do so well at um, understanding language, particularly social and emotional concepts so his theory his learning theory of autism is called hyposystemizing systemizing, excuse me and hypoemotionalizing so I took that theory and put it to work with the five-point scale so what happened was I thought all right how do you highly systemize emotion and social concepts so we a system could be numbers a system could be you know any number of things but um my colleague and i mitzi curtis uh decided to go with a five point scale and we started using it to clarify information for individuals who were confused by expectations or social rules why people did what they did or responded mm. to them the way that they did.
0: Mm, excellent. So this is how it all came about.
1: <laughs> yes, that's
0: <laughs> – yep. Excellent. So so for parents who are unfamiliar with the five-point scale, what what is it and what does it look like and what is the goal of the scale?
1: Well, the goal is to teach in a highly systemized format social and emotional concepts. Um, and it, it, you, it's taught. It's it uh, is considered a, a cognitive behavioral approach. Um, it's a visual system, so it's using that visual and system uh, to teach. Um, an example would be somebody who oh, whose voice volume uh, was not always at the right point. So their voice might get too high, too, too loud. Um, and this is what happened with this. was One of the first scales that we ever designed was for a middle school boy who was in the hallway speaking and he was speaking too loud. So, um, I would go out into the hallway and try to get his attention. And then I would shush him, <laughs> of course, because, How else? What do we? How do we know how to do? uh, Any time adults uh, try to manage, modify, or change behavior, they typically resort to however they were taught by their parents or by their um, teachers. And so shushing certainly is not a scientific approach and it didn't serve me well. He would, he screamed back, shut up, you know, and stop doing that. So I had to stop and think about it and I wondered why he was so sensitive and because his response seemed to be, um, seemed to be real, uh, Defensive. And so I I figure, okay, it's defensive because he really doesn't mean to be talking too loud. And he he might not even know how to figure out what is too loud. So we made a scale. And one was no talking at all. And two was just talking in a whisper. And if you uh, want to visualize the scale, I start at the bottom with one and go up to the top with five. And a one is the smallest, five is the biggest. I try to stay away from bad and good because that's judging. I don't want to judge them. I want to give them information. So one would be talking, no talking at all. So so silence, which is okay sometimes, but not others. Um, There's no judgment into whether or not you should be quiet or not quiet. And then two was a whisper. Three was talking socially, like talking on the phone or maybe talking in the hallway during passing time. Um, And that's where he wanted to try to stay at a three when he's in the hallway. Four would be loud talking. It's almost like yelling. And five, that was way too loud or or actually screaming. So he would get up to a four um, in the hallway. And I was hoping that he would understand that the hallway was a number three. So instead of saying, you're too loud, which is a judgment call, and sounds very judging, I'm just saying, the hallway is a three, so we need our voice to be at a three. And it worked beautifully. It seemed to take some of the edge off of a correction, if you will. So um, I, then I would go out into the hallway. I taught it to him with a, with a story. I wrote a story about when a one, what, what environments were ones, twos, threes, fours, and fives, and then talked about what kind of voice would be in those environments, what you want to try to be uh, in those environments. So then I would, I took a little scale, tiny little, like a size of a, of a business card scale out into the hallway. And then all I did was hold it up and it was just our secret it was between him and me Mm. and he knew he knew i was saying that he was probably going up to a four and he needed to try to get it back to a three so i was able to prompt him without him getting um defensive and angry with me Mm. and by he was more open to learning
0: Absolutely. And I think it's very true what you're saying. Children on the spectrum sometimes need to be explicitly taught these social and emotional, um, what's expected of them. Um, They don't sort of just pick it up from the natural environment like other children. Um, They need to be explicitly taught. Mm, And I think that's what the scale does. It, It says, you know, this is what is appropriate or expected. Um, in this environment and, you know, this is how we can do it.
1: Right. And I think it's the real, in, the real important piece here is not to be judgmental. So you mm-hmm. want to stay away from words like appropriate because that's, that's a judgment call, right? Okay. Mm-hmm. Instead, you are defining each l- number. Um, and uh, let me, um, I could tell give you another example. Yeah, please. It'd be helpful, um, for example, if a child uh, sometimes has a really hard time out at recess um, and some days when you call him in from recess, the kid's in, he, he, he has a meltdown, he, he loses emotional control and other days he comes in okay and so you don't know why it's different And working through a scale with this child might, you might find that there's something beside, there are issues that happen out at recess that impact his emotional control. For example, it might be weather or it might be access to particular um, equipment, the slide or the swings. So you'd have, um, if you, work through a five point scale you might have a one be I'm feeling amazing I can come in the minute you call you know two I'm feeling pretty good I'll come in um, without any problems a three might be I'm okay I'll come in I would I won't like it but I will and a four might be this is bad I can't come in I'm my body won't move and horrible is I'm going right down to the ground. I'm going to scream. I can't stand it. Uh, my, my emotions are too big. So then, um, you might find out after you make a scale like that, that if the sun is shining, he's usually at a one. If there's uh, if it's cloudy, then it's maybe at a three. And if it looks like dark clouds, rain clouds, then maybe it's a four. Uh, maybe he feels great when he gets a ton of turns on the slide, but maybe he's out there on one day and there are three other classrooms out there and he, the line is too long. So he's really feeling more like a four, uh, by the time you call him in. So when you call him in, you're not aware of all of that. There are, all social situations are so, are so full of, Things that happen, uh, we're we're constantly sort of shooting from the hip when we're in social settings, and if we don't have the emotional regulation skills or we don't have the ability to negotiate effectively in a social situation, then it it chips away at our at our ability to handle frustration and to remain flexible. All of this goes into that one little kid's ability to come in when he's called in from recess. So it's there's so much more to it, I think, than simple behavior management or simple reward punishment. Those programs aren't bad, but they're so simplistic. They don't get at what is really needed, which is teaching Something that doesn't seem to be easy for these individuals to learn. Mm.
0: Yeah, and it's a lot about that self regulation, isn't it? Getting the child to understand and identify their own emotions so they can better better manage their behaviors.
1: Right. Um, it it's better um, when a child can understand their own emotions and define their own emotions that helps them control themselves in the past, uh, coming out of, you know, the 1970s era where we were very hands on as far as restraining children and timing kids out and trying to control, uh, children's behavior and adults behavior rather than understanding it's a cognitive issue and if that person has more skills if you can teach those skills they they're more equipped to be able to control them their own emotions their own behavior and that's the ultimate goal if you if you are controlling uh, a student's behavior or as a parent you're always controlling, uh, your child's behavior, you're not really teaching that person to become an independent adult. And it takes a long time in some cases for kids to really learn this. And, um, so I think it, I think it deserves a lot of attention and mm-hmm. sometimes, um, it's not given the attention it needs. One, uh, an interesting conundrum is that, Oftentimes, somebody might say, Well, you're not taking the behavior seriously because you're not punishing. But I feel that punishment is not taking it seriously because punishment really isn't teaching anything new. Um, and if you continue to do that, you're just putting a band aid on a sore that's going to continue to fester. And then as an adult, you prepared somebody for one environment, and that's jail or a restrictive environment, and that's not right. And we did that for years until we learned, I think, as as a group of special educators and um, a lot of dedicated parents, that we have to teach this information in order to um, help somebody uh, handle their own emotional regulation
0: Mm, yeah and i think the five point scale does that beautifully it's very easy and it's something that can be translated you know across different environments it can be used at home it can be used at school it can be used out in the community And um, what I also love about it is that it can be used for anyone sort of across the lifespan. So it can be used for younger children, it can be used for adolescents, and it can be used for adults as well. Um, So I thought we might just touch on some examples of how maybe younger children sort of two to five um, might be able to use the scale and is there sort of um, an age group that it works best with or um, if you could just provide some information on working with the five-point scale with uh, children across the lifespan?
1: Certainly. Um, One, I do have a book, I I think you might have mentioned it um, in the intro called When My Worries Get Too Big. Yes, yep. Yeah, and that is using a story to teach um, a a child about their own level of anxiety. And that I have used with two- and Mm three-year-olds. And I've seen a lot of good uh, understanding come out of that. I've also um, used three-point skills with some very young children. I've also used skills... With cartoon
0: characters on them, um, you yes, I pers- often use the um, Eeyore, the the Winnie the Pooh characters. So Winnie the Pooh is the just right, and Eeyore is the tired, and Tigger's the overexcited. Um, yeah, as as a scale that children can refer to.
1: Yes, and um, you can use like uh, vehicles, different vehicles, maybe for. Um, speed um to just dis- to try to define for a child what is too fast in the hallway um rather than you know you- you're going you're running in the no running in the hallway um but then a child with autism is observant and sees that people are walking in all different um speeds um as- but they're not able that person is not able to consider the environment and say, okay, there are no teachers around, so I can run a little bit right here. Um, because that's the rule. The rule isn't really no running in the hallway. The rule is no getting caught running in the hallway. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but a child mm-hmm. who's not really aware of what's going on around him socially um, doesn't pick up on that subtle uh, rule. Yeah. <laughs> that, And so then he or she might think that they're getting punished and everybody else is getting away with with breaking the rules um, or they hear a rule of no running in the hall and they see other kids running in the hall. So they, they think it's a lie. Mm-hmm. So those are, you know, some, how, how fast you're going, um, how, how you're feeling. Those are some easy concepts that you can start as early as two and three um, in a two and three year old early childhood class, I have a friend who used the five point scale, but she highlighted one, three, and five. And the one was uh, practically uh, just really calm and feeling really good and uh, wanting to work. Um, A three was, I'm a little bit nervous, but I'm still paying attention. And a five was, I can't pay attention at all. Um, her idea was that eventually she'd like to break the concept into five parts, but for her two and three year olds, she was only going to focus on three parts, but wanted to set it up with a five, uh, five point scale rather than a three point scale so that it could, so that a five was a five was a five so that they would be learning a five as a loss of control, emotional control. And it would be that when they go to a five point scale as well. I don't know if that came out Mm.
0: clear. Yeah, no, that makes sense. So they can um, transition from that three-point scale to the five-point scale without actually having to change what's, yeah, on each level. Correct. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And by going from three to five, what you're doing is you're just breaking, you're, you're breaking that concept down a little further so that you can, uh learn a little bit more about the subtleties of the concept. Mm-hmm. So if you're looking at the concept of um of anxiety that's introduced in the book when my worries get too big. Um that con- that that is one that would be appropriate for using five even using five um parts to it uh for teaching of a young child about their um about their own anxiety. So a one would be calm and relaxed. A two would be feeling okay. A three, I'm a little nervous. Four, I think I'm getting angry. And five, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lose it. I'm going to explode. Hmm. Um, you can start that by having kids check in. And that's um, not only reading the story to them, but also having a poster of that scale and have the kids go over and point to how they're feeling, a one, two, three, four, five, hmm. uh, throughout the day.
0: Yes. Yeah, I was going to say how often should children be checking in?
1: Right. If it's a check-in scale, and in this case it is a check-in scale, so you want to stay on top of your emotion, so you don't want to get to a four or a five. Um, on the emotion scale on the anxiety scale, right? You want to stay below a three so that you're able to work and, and get along and, and not get too frustrated. Um, so checking in throughout the day, uh, is helpful. It, not only when you're first learning what the scale is about, but also if you have autism, the, you have a good chance that you have a lot of anxiety as well. Mm. Um, mostly associated with school because school is such a social environment you can almost if you don't understand people and uh, social rules don't seem logical uh people you can't predict other people's behavior very well school can be a nightmare so um it's nice for and Another piece is that transitions are difficult for individuals on the spectrum. So by the time somebody gets up, um, has breakfast, uh, possibly watches a little TV, and then gets on the bus and comes to school, by the time they get to school, they've already gone through about four four transitions. So it's likely that kids on the spectrum can walk into school at a three. On their anxiety scale so that's a really good thing to acknowledge and help them by saying okay let's let's do some relaxation first thing in the morning let's do some yoga let's do some deep breathing let's Mm -hmm. take a walk Uh, let's do some drawing Um, uh, whatever is might be a relaxing activity so that the kids are coming in in the morning rating themselves Maybe out of three, I'm a little nervous today, doing some relaxation and rating themselves again.
0: Mm, yeah, what I they think they it's think? exactly. A one or a
1: two? Right.
0: Yeah, sorry. I was just going to say that um, when you're talking about getting on the school bus and all the different transitions, I think, too, particularly children on the spectrum who may have sensory defensive issues Um, you know just before they even get to school they may have encountered a lot of different things that they may not have wanted to do like brushing their teeth and just getting dressed and putting their school jumper on and different sensory sensitivities that may trigger certain undesirable behaviors Um, so checking in I think at the start as soon as they get to school can be really useful
1: yes and um, actually, I've seen that work all the way through the lifespan. Mm. Um, I, um, I've worked with adults at uh, employment and have them do the same thing, learn to check in on their with somebody in the beginning and uh, maybe a counselor or a, a job coach. And then it's a system that they can keep with them uh, independently so that they can check in on themselves at every break.
0: Mm, well, uh, it really is just that self-regulation, isn't it? Um, yes. A system to to look at how how you're regulating your emotions and what can you do if you're at a certain level on the scale.
1: Right. Yes. Yeah. And how to bring yourself down. How to and that the visual of the one going up to the five and the five being an explosion. It's a great visual for kids to visualize themselves pulling their worries down mm.
0: getting,
1: making their worries smaller
0: mm. do you use um, photographs of people we were talking earlier about the different sorts of um images that we can attach to the numbers to use photographs often
1: yes I, I actually i've used photographs with nonverbal kids um mm. i use disney characters as well um sometimes photographs uh work really well but sometimes they're too personal and if it if it doesn't work uh and you have a child who's watched um you know the little mermaid a hundred times then then you can use those little mermaid characters um and kind of put them there are bad characters and there are good characters and there are angry characters and there are sweet characters so you can kind of rate them on a five-point scale, mm. and so they they lend themselves to learning about different emotions. Yeah. Um, uh, what would make you know? What would make Ariella a five? You know, a five. <laughs> and what? Yeah. what how, when is she feeling like a one?
0: Mm. So you're saying tap into the child's interests and their motivations to be able to absolutely. self-regulate. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Yes, absolutely. Um, but also, if somebody is nonverbal it's no reason to not try it because it actually should be easier
0: than understanding your words okay so let's talk about for the nonverbal children is it any different in terms of developing the scale or is it exactly the same
1: well it's it's you might not have as much input obviously as somebody who's speaking to you and giving you um and having some of their insight available to them mm-hmm. in words.
0: So, some, so the child it, is involved in the okay. whole process of developing the five point scale. Typically, is that correct?
1: As much as possible, yes.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, um, I did. I developed a a, a uh, pocket activity. It's called "The Five Could Make Me Lose Control." and that i've used with nonverbal individuals to teach about um about their anxiety level as well and it's a real concrete hands on uh there are uh five pockets like library pockets and uh, a one again is feeling really doesn't bother me at all a uh, two bothers me a little bit three um fathers uh makes me nervous four makes me mad and five i'm gonna lose control over this um and then you have like ca- the cards ha- um different environments like the lunchroom the school bus um uh you know when dad goes on uh on a business trip uh riding in the car uh, going to the grocery store, you can have all these different environments and different activities on cards, and give the card to the child once you have pointed out what each pocket means, and see if they can learn how to rate how they feel about that situation, and put they'll put that activity they'll put that environment like the lunchroom in a particular pocket and it doesn't happen instantly but it's a really nice way to teach it in a real concrete
0: hands-on mm, practical action. way. Mm. Excellent. Now I've written down here um some dot points that I think I've got off your wonderful website um regarding how parents or teachers might go about developing their five-point scale. So I'll just go through it so the listeners can get a bit of an idea if they were to implement something like this today, which they totally be- can because, you know, it's something that you can you can draw up on the computer or you can do it with the crayons. It doesn't matter sort of um, what your resources are like. Anyone can do this. It's very simple and it doesn't cost a cent. Um, right. <laughs> So the first step is determining the problem and then number two is identify the skill or the concept that the person needs to develop and then you break the concept into five parts and then you can also use a story or a video to help the person understand what the scale means and then reviewing the scale prior to predicting difficult times Is there anything that you wanted to add to that in terms of if parents are going to go away with some practical advice that they can do after listening to this episode?
1: Um, Well, actually, that is... (laughs) Yeah. That's exactly it. That's how they would do it. Um, And uh, they can practice um, just by trying to figure out what is a problem. Identify a couple problems and then ask themselves what skill could my child learn so that he can handle that problem better? What's a skill that he doesn't have or is, it's lacking. Um, and then take that skill and figure out what concepts are involved in that skill. Um, and if we go back to the voice volume, um, looking at the, the boy who was in the hallway and being too loud. If I'm stuck thinking he's just too loud, that doesn't give me, that gives me nothing to go on. Um, One of my favorite uh, authors in this field is Ross Green, Dr. Ross Green. He wrote The Explosive Child. And he said that... um, when you're doing an assessment of challenging behavior the outcome should be le- should leave that parent or leave that teacher at the doorstep of intervention so if you think about that if you think if you think about the word escape um, oftentimes somebody will do a an assessment a functional assessment of challenging behavior and the outcome they'll say is well um Uh, he's trying to escape um that does not leave the teacher or parent on the doorstep (laughs) of intervention instead of it's only half the answer yeah he's he's running away he's avoiding but escape is such it doesn't tell me what to do it just gives me the bad news Mm, it doesn't give me the why it doesn't give you the why and it you and it's really hard to get at the why so instead and um, you know i'm looking at um the kid who is too loud in the hallway and if i'm just saying over and over and over again you're too loud and nothing changes i mean what it What does that say about me and my own intelligence and my ability to say, hello, it's not working. Um, Let's try going a little deeper. Let's figure out what he's missing. What skill doesn't he have? And that student did not have an awareness of his own voice volume. And I've actually met many individuals on the autism spectrum since that boy um, who have told me that they, too, don't are not aware of or don't hear their own voice volume
0: so they can't regulate it well because they're I unaware think I of. actually have a problem with that my husband always tells me all the time that I'm yelling and I think I'm talking normally <laughs> so maybe I need a scale for that too I'll work on that one <laughs> um so what and we might just start to wrap it up now and head to the five rapid fire questions. So, what number one? What is one habit that parents can implement today?
1: Um, I really think the anxiety scale
0: is—it's an easy
1: one to start with because it's easy to imagine in your own head uh, that a five is an explosion and a one is calm, and all of the the three stages in between and then once once you put it together once you make the scale um, it you can individualize it so that uh, a one is calm and relaxed so maybe a picture of their child being very calm and relaxed or a picture of something they know makes their child very calm and relaxed um, or an uh for an older person an activity that you know that your child does that um makes him calm and relaxed and then you go through the whole scale what then feeling okay but not perfect what does that look like when you know he's starting to get a little nervous, uh, is he starting to talk a lot? Is his voice getting louder? Is he um, talking about certain topics when he starts to get anxious? Uh, I had one. I worked with one little boy who was on a gluten-free diet, and every time he would start to get anxious, he'd start literally listing the food he couldn't have <laughs> mm. because it made him nervous. Mm. He was beginning to feel, nervous, and he. Equate service with thinking about food that he couldn't have. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, so um, I I think that the, then I would post it. I'd post it in the kitchen and in the morning um, after breakfast, you know, have your child rate herself on the scale. And then um, when she comes home from school, have her rate herself again. And then if it's, if she's at a three, do some calming activities um, before dinner or before any um, evening activities. Uh, also, then, if you have to go to the dentist or to the doctor, then you may want to have some deep breathing and calming activities and illustrate for your child that you know, he might feel like a four just thinking about the doctor. So you have to take a deep breath. And we have to help each other stay really calm. Mm. Um, Another, I'll just tell you another thing. You said one thing, but.
0: (laughs) go for gold. (laughs) Go for it. (laughs) (laughs) It's important
1: for parents to understand that anxiety and stress is contagious. And so if you are, if you have a child and you know your child and you know your child's about to lose it, stay quiet and try to calm yourself. It is the best. Stop talking. Don't try to control the situation too much. Back off a bit from any kind of demand and help your child relax because if you
0: try to push through anxiety, you're just going to get an explosion. I think that is a real gem, and I think what you're talking about there is our own self-regulation. And, you know, to be honest, you know, a lot of the times as a parent – you know, having a child who has challenges throughout the day can be really hard to manage your own emotions and your own behaviours and you get so frustrated. So I think that's really important is to stay calm and, and to remember that and be present in the moment.
1: Yes. Mm. Okay.
0: Number two, what do people never ask you that you wish they did?
1: Yeah, I, you know what, I think... Um, hmm. um when i talk and when i write i usually i usually stress that a five is never worth it and i rarely have anybody ask me a question about that why not um and it is really um it's a much bigger deal than most people think because when we were all taught by our parents how to behave um or i i was taught early on in um at the university on how to handle challenging behaviors. One thing that was stressed was that I needed to respond in the moment so that the person knew exactly what they did wrong. And that I believe is totally incorrect. I think it's, I think what that nobody loses emotional control and has control of their cognitive abilities. So when you're at a five, You are not learning. You're not in a place where your brain can absorb good information. You're incapable of making good choices. So when I see teachers or parents in um, a situation where the child is beginning to lose control of their emotions and the response is make a good choice, that comes straight out of the old textbooks. And yet that. Is the worst time for that person to have to try to make a choice because they're not thinking and we have research in the area of anxiety that totally totally backs that up that when you're on that anxiety scale once you go beyond like a three point five you're losing your ability to make a good choice to make good decisions to think clearly to remember lessons from previous <laughs> mistakes, all of that that goes into making good choices kind of evaporates once you go above that 3.5. So my uh, my I stress that every, you should really really get a handle on your child's twos and threes, so that you know when and to back off, when to leave a situation before it gets bad, because if you wait. Um, when you when you want to leave a store, for example, your child is getting too anxious and you want to leave the store, if they fall to the ground and refuse to move, that means that they already were at a four and you missed it. You missed your window of opportunity, your window of flexibility. So it, starting to understand your child in terms of the five-point scale is really helpful because you start to see when he starts talking about gluten-free food, we need to leave because Mm -hmm. that means he's out of three and he's not going to have the self-control to do anything but fail if we continue on this road, on this path. So just quickly...
0: when you said that um, don't give a choice when they're at number five, they can't clearly make decisions at that time. They're not in the right frame of mind. Um, do you just let it play out? What do you do? Obviously, you said to stay calm and keep yourself in control, but what, what should parents do in that stage? Okay.
1: Well, first of all, you're, you're, all of your energy needs to go into twos and threes, identifying those twos and threes you know does does he start to talk um more rapidly does he start uh quoting text from you know the a movie that he watches over and over again is he starting uh to pace up and down does he put his hands over his ears um all kinds of of behaviors uh kids have they don't go from 1 to 5 and that's a big mistake that no matter how quickly your child goes from 1 to 5 there's a there are there's a breakdown in there there's something even if it's like um no, he got very little sleep the night before then that day he's going to hit a 5 so you want to make sure the 2s and 3s for your child are understood mm-hmm. and then um hopefully you can re focus that person, redirect that person, when they're still calm enough to be able to participate in that redirection. Once they're going to fall to the ground, that's a four. Now, a four, he's not screaming or biting or kicking, right? So that's where you have to stop. Stop at a four, and that's where it's our normal parenting and teaching, teachering uh, inclination to start talking more and try to control. And our own anxiety typically spikes up because it's like, oh, my God, he's losing it. And everybody's looking at me because I'm supposed to keep him under control. And you have to work against that natural instinct. (laughs) You have to just stop talking realize that that fall to the ground means I've had it and I'm one step away from kicking, screaming, and biting. If parents can understand that, then you can back off silently. You don't have to reward. That's not a reward. It's simply a recognition that the anxiety in the room is too big right now and I am going to help back off. And then I'm going to think about this hard And long before we come back to this store, I'm going to figure out where was it that it began to fall apart? Maybe I was too ambitious. I decided I'm going to, you know, buy everything rather than, okay, we're going to go to the store and we're only going to buy five things. Here's what we're going to buy. You can check off the list so that the child has some sort of sense of how long are we going to be here? When are we all done? When are we checking out? What do I get when it's all over? If I, if anything, do I get to play at the park? Do we, you know, where are we going when we're finished with the store? There are certain things that, that helping your child understand where they are, what they're supposed to be doing, where we're going, what to expect, how long we're going to be there, and where do we go when we're finished? Those are really important questions that typically developing children learn to anticipate and understand just based on their social information. Individuals on the spectrum have a really hard time being able to guess and predict all of the things that are going to happen. So there's a sense of anxiety about almost everything um, if they don't have some sense of
0: order to it. Exactly. So
1: if I'm in the store and he falls to the ground and I'm going to back off because I, I didn't get it. I, I missed those twos and threes. So I'm going to take ownership of this interaction and say, wow, I, I blew it because now he's on the ground. <laughs> I'm going to protect him. I'm going to protect everything around him, but I'm going to calm my own body and be quiet and not push him to a five. But recognize that that fall to the ground, that's a sure sign of a number four.
0: Mm, excellent advice. Thank you. That's great. Um, so number three, what book would you recommend that all parents read other than obviously your amazing books that you have out there in the world? Is there any other book that you would recommend?
1: Yes, you know... um, um, I really do like The Explosive Child, and there have been new additions to that, so there have been updated additions, and that author is Dr. Ross Green, and um, and the reason I really like it is because he doesn't necessarily focus on autism, but he does focus on the neuroscience of challenging behavior. And he talks about the same thing, the the power of anxiety and how if we don't address anxiety, we're missing the whole point. And we're not going to you can't force a person to behave, it's it's all about ha- that person learning and having the skills in order to, uh, available to him when life throws him a, a curveball.
0: Mm, okay, great. Um, what is one of your top three unfinished bucket list items?
1: <laughs> you know, it's so interesting. Um, oh, top three. <laughs> One of the top three. Things. I've been so fortunate. I've traveled to Australia three times. Um, I've traveled to Africa three times. Um, uh, there are, I've done a lot. I, you know what? I have not been to South America. I would like to go to South America.
0: Yeah. Travel is always one of those things, I think, that's on everyone's bucket list, isn't there? Um, you know, just so many places to see and not enough time to visit all these beautiful countries. You know
1: I just thought of one. I, I think this might be my talk, and that is going up to the Hudson Bay um, in the fall to uh, observe the migration of the polar bears.
0: Oh wow. Mm. Yeah, it'll be magnificent. It's something we don't experience anything like that here. <laughs> right and so last question i mean this hasn't been a rapid fire question by any means but it has been so wonderful just to soak up all your wisdom um but the last of the rapid fire questions is if you could offer one piece of advice to parents what would it be um take time to
1: enjoy your child um find ways to connect with your child even if they're not you think it's weird or odd, or um they're not interests of yours um, in, enjoy your child don't don't take too much of your time worrying about how to change your child I mean really embrace who he or she is, their personality um find joy where they find joy, watch where they giggle even if it's dust coming through on a a light beam (laughs) um for some reason if he thinks it's funny then that's where his focus of social attention is on that light beam of dust Uh, and you want to join him there um the other, you know, uh, in connection with that, I have to say that I'm lucky enough to, I have a longevity in this field, um, and I've stayed in touch with kids that I had in
0: 1981.
1: Wow. And, yeah, and they're in their 40s now, and um, it, it is a developmental disability, and it does develop, um nonverbal kids who are actually having conversations social conversations who get very excited when they see me they have social recall they can tell me stories about when they were you know four and five years old and they were in my class it's pretty amazing um when i see how far some of these children were able to develop just at a much slower rate it gets better
0: Mm. It gets easier mm. oh when you were talking about finding the joy in the little things and everything i just uh, i think it really struck a chord with me and you know i just wanted to hug my kids then it was just beautifully said thank you so much thank you so much carrie i mean for joining us today it's been so wonderful i've soaked up so much of your wisdom and um you know, it's been a pleasure to have you on the show. Where can our listeners find out more about you? Where can they purchase your wonderful resources and books? How do they go about getting their hands on um, all those sorts of exciting goodies that you've put out there?
1: Sure. Um, the publishing company that has published all of my books is the Autism Asperger Publishing Company, and that's... Um, that web address is um, aapcpublishing.net. So it's aapcpublishing.net. They can also go to my website, which is um, five point scale, uh, five, the numeral five, scale.com excellent
0: and like i said in the intro if you just google incredible five point scale there will be so many um search results that will come up lots of different images on google um, to show you how other people around the world are using this incredible scale so thank you so much kari for joining us today and sharing with us all your insight and wisdom as it relates to children on the spectrum thank you it was a pleasure Uh, thank you i'll talk to you later Bye. Okay, bye. I hope that today's show has resonated with you in some way, and I hope that you have been inspired to take action and make positive change from home base. If there is someone you know who would benefit from this podcast, please share it. And I would love for you to join our home base hope community. You can do this by subscribing to this podcast. All you have to do is head on over to iTunes and hit the subscribe button. And every fortnight, you will get an instant notification of the latest interview. If you do like this show, please jump on iTunes and leave a five-star review so more people can discover us and so we can inspire positive change in more people living on the spectrum. If you do leave a five-star review, please take a screenshot and send it to info at homebasehope.com.au with the subject line free ebook and i will send you a copy of our awesome ebook understanding behaviors in this book i show you how to manage challenging behaviors at school at home and in therapy i talk about the differences between tantrums meltdowns and button pushing and i also arm you with practical strategies you can start using today you can access all of the show notes and other episodes at homebasehope.com.au So until next time, I encourage you to open your mind, respect the differences, and above all, believe that you can make a difference from home base. See you soon, guys.